break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, Monday, the 11th of October, 2021. Certainly want to note that today is Indigenous Peoples Day here in the United States. And we are very happy to be back with you here on Indigenous Peoples Day. And we have plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the epidemic of mass incarceration and how it affects the indigenous community here in the United States. We're also going to be talking about the ongoing political impasse in Somalia. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with some very crucial and important revelations concerning policing in America. We're going to go find some more people. Instead of chasing people around, we're going to hunt. Well, those were the sounds of Minneapolis police officers you just heard there, suppressing peaceful protests, laughing about it, and, yes, saying that they were planning to quote-unquote hunt protesters. And this all took place last year during the mass uprising in the Twin Cities after the brutal murder of George Floyd. And this audio is from body camera footage that was a part of the trial of Jaleel Stallings, who had been charged with shooting at police officers. Stallings was acquitted by a jury on all charges this July after they determined he had fired in self-defense. As the body camera footage of his specific incident showed, the Minneapolis cops were riding around in unmarked white vans just shooting all sorts of so-called non-lethal projectiles at people and, of course, not identifying themselves as police officers. And at one point, they opened fire on Stallings, who fired back. They then identified themselves as cops. He totally complied with all orders, but they still kicked and beat him as well as arrested him. Stallings argued that he had reason to fear they were white supremacist vigilantes. And this is crucially important because let me tell you, I was there with our breakthrough news team in Minneapolis at the same time. And without a doubt, there were tons of rumors of KKK type forces roaming the city, looking to kill and attack black people, including, by the way, some of them rolling around in unmarked white vans. So interesting coincidence there. So clearly Stallings, who was legally carrying his weapon, by the way, legally is a gun owner, was in the right and the cops were in the wrong. And thankfully, the jury saw that correctly. But the whole incident really raises yet again this issue of the culture of impunity around policing in the U.S., where a mythos of quote-unquote protect and serve prevails despite massive evidence of routine harassment, abuse, murder, and mayhem coming from law enforcement of all types. And these videos you just heard a bit of were the perfect example of that, which leads me to another perfect example and easily one of the most shocking stories this year in the United States. And that is a relatively recent study from the end of September that details that there is a massive undercounting in the number of police killings in the U.S. 
The findings from researchers at the University of Washington that were published in the Lancet Medical Journal detail that from 1980 to 2019, police killings were undercounted by half. As the New York Times summarizes, quote, researchers estimated that over the time period they studied, which roughly tracks the era of the war on drugs and the rise of mass incarceration, nearly 31,000 Americans were killed by the police, with more than 17,000 of them going unaccounted in the official statistics, end quote. The Times further notes that, quote, the annual number of deaths in police custody has generally gone upward since 1980, even as crime has declined from its peak in the early 1990s, end quote. And also, and this one might be unsurprising, the report found that, quote, black Americans were three and a half times as likely to be killed by the police as white Americans were. The study also noted that the racial disparities had actually widened since the year 2000. And it also notably relates, the report relates that, quote, more American men died in 2019 during police encounters than from Hodgkin's lymphoma or testicular cancer, end quote. Hmm. 17,000 unaccounted for killings. Amazing. Why is this happening, these 17,000 unaccounted for police murders? Well, the main reason seems to be medical examiners who, like prosecutors, have close relationships with the police and often fail to list the police as being involved in the case of death. Although, to be fair, there are some medical examiners who have spoken out about the police not giving them enough information in many cases, and that's why there's an undercount. But either way, there's malice on the part of the cops, the coroners, or both. And because of that, many cases are going mislabeled as something other than police murders. As the Times also noted about some of these cases, quote, Ronald Green's death in Louisiana, for instance, was attributed by the coroner to a cardiac arrest and classified as accidental before video emerged of him being stunned, beaten, and dragged by state troopers. In Aurora, Colorado, the manner of Elijah McClain's death was ruled undetermined after the police put him in a chokehold and paramedics injected him with ketamine, a powerful sedative. Almost two years later, three officers and two paramedics were indicted. Even in the case of George Floyd, whose agonizing last breaths under a Minneapolis police officer's knee were captured on bystander video, the police and county medical examiner first pointed to drug use and underlying health conditions. End quote. One other notable point here that was also noted by the New York Times. In 2014, a federal law was passed allegedly to require reporting on in-custody deaths to clear some of the fog around police killings. Well, it's 2021 and nothing has yet been produced. The cover-up continues. Tens of thousands of people are extrajudicially murdered by the cops in the United States over the last 40 years. That's justice. American style for you. There's a flurry of news coming out of Somalia, a delayed presidential election, tensions over quote unquote peacekeeping forces and a potentially significant row shaping up between Kenya and the Somali government over coastal waters. To start with the election, yesterday was supposed to be a presidential election in Somalia. However, it was delayed after being delayed for most of this year and having partially moved forward in fits and starts for the past month or so. The government is saying these are just technical issues, but no date has yet been set for the vote to move forward. Presidential elections in Somalia are indirect, and ministers of parliament vote for the president after being elected by an electoral college established by the major leaders of the various major clans in Somalia who also approve the candidates for parliament. So very indirect presidential election there. And this, however, has been a bone of contention from the start. The current president, known colloquially as Farmajo, has been critical of this system and has made one of his major points that Somalia should have a one-person, one-vote electoral system rather than just a stitch-up of a handful of powerful elites. 
And this has caused major rifts, though, in the government and the international forces standing behind it. Farmajo's opponents, of course, are arguing that he just wants to seize power for himself and that his pro-democratic statements are all ploys. They, of course, like the current setup because it certainly empowers them. The opponents to Farmajo, who are gathered in a coalition made up or led by, I should say, former presidents and other high officials. But it's also notable here that the U.S. also wants to keep this same indirect system of choosing the leaders, basically a bunch of elites getting together and choosing them. The U.S. claims it's about stability. But quite frankly, that doesn't hold much water because the country is not that stable now. A large portion of the southern part of the country is controlled by al-Shabaab, an insurgent group, and the federal system in and of itself is very loose and fragmented. The real issue for the United States is reliability and promoting a fig leaf of democracy. The U.S. set up the existing setup after partnering with Ethiopia, then led by the TPLF, now waging its own insurgency in Ethiopia to destabilize Somalia. They did that because the government of the time in Somalia, the Islamic Courts Union, was not deemed pro-U.S. enough to be the government in such a critical geostrategic area, or at least that's what the U.S. deemed to be the case. And of course, they determine who's the government anywhere. This seems to be behind the current issues with the U.S. and Farmajo. Farmajo, whatever his own ambitions, clearly wants to limit the power of many of these pro-Western players and in fact has signed on to the new Horn of Africa coalition being promoted by Eritrea and Ethiopia. In particular, the U.S. views Eritrea as a malign force in the region, too independent to control, and clearly fears that Eritrean diplomacy is opening up the door to governments in the Horn, taking a more independent, less sycophantic position in terms of how they operate. Which brings us to our next point. The U.S. is going out of its way to re-engage militarily in Somalia after Trump slightly pulled back. Biden has already started reauthorizing drone strikes, and a bunch of U.S. military leaders have been meeting with various Somali forces pledging to support them against al-Shabaab. Further, the Western-backed African Union mission said it's going to expand its mandate, although the Somali government and Farmajo opposed this, saying the AU forces failed to do the job so far. And to connect the two pieces, Farmajo also sent a number of troops to Eritrea to be trained. So putting it all together, you can see the U.S. is concerned its Horn of Africa regional dominance and related security structures may be slipping away, slipping out of their grasp. And of course, they've been claiming they're promoting freedom and democracy in Somalia since 2007. So everything that's happening now and what Farmajo is doing is really just ripping the mask off of this fake democracy. So there's a number of different issues that are both embarrassing the United States and making it more difficult for them to maintain their regional dominance. And just to add one more element, Kenya, which is a major part of that AU force that's potentially being reauthorized and has also been accused by many of seeking to take advantage of and control large parts of Somalia under the cover of peacekeeping and anti-terrorism operations, has been waging this issue with Somalia over maritime boundaries. Kenya has been arguing that a large part of Somali territorial waters are actually Kenyan. However, they just lost a major case at the International Court of Justice on this issue. That's a U.N. institution. And conveniently, Kenya just withdrew from the ICJ and says they are going to continue making these same claims, which are obviously important to them economically because it allows them to, quote unquote, legally exploit the waters off of Somalia. So all told, the presidential elections in Somalia are really wrapped up in a deeper question of how, if at all, the country can be reunited, secured and moved beyond indirect clan elite dominated politics. And that question is wrapped up in the issue of whether the U.S. and other Western nations are willing to allow self-determination to take place or to keep putting their thumb on the scale to keep Somalia weak, but their Western interests quite strong. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day here in the United States, formerly known as Columbus Day. It's a day of remembrance for the brutal genocide unleashed on the native peoples of this continent, starting with Columbus, killing tens of millions to establish European colonies. 
While thankfully, and due to the struggles of Native people, there is a much larger knowledge of and celebration of indigenous cultures, heritage, and the genocide perpetuated against them, and a much greater outcry about the many ongoing injustices done to Native people, in particular the murdered and missing indigenous women and girls crisis, and the ongoing encroachment of Native lands by fossil fuel companies. However, this just points to the fact that there are many ongoing injustices. And one other major issue is that Native people are disproportionately victimized by the criminal legal system in the United States. The only subset of the population really that matches black Americans in this regard in terms of the level of oppression. A new study from the Prison Policy Initiative has laid out some of this reality. They note that, quote, over the past 10 years, the Native jail population is up a shocking 85 percent. And that doesn't even include those held in Indian country jails, which are located on tribal lands. The number of people in Indian country jails has increased by 61% between 2000 and 2018. And meanwhile, the total population of Native people living on tribal lands has actually decreased slightly over the same time period, leaving us to conclude that we are criminalizing Native people at ever-increasing rates. And the report goes on to further note that, quote, Native people made up 2.1% of all federally incarcerated people in 2019, larger than their share of the total U.S. population, which was less than 1%. Similarly, Native people made up about 2.3% of people on federal community supervision in mid-2018. The report goes on to note that, quote, Native women are particularly overrepresented in the incarcerated population. They made up 2.5% of women in prisons and jails in 2010, the most recent year for which we have the data. That year, Native women were just 0.7% of the total U.S. female population. And just to add even more here, they detail that the incarceration rate for Native youth exceeds those of white, Hispanic, and Asian youth combined. And the report also goes on to note that their numbers are likely an undercount, saying, quote, one reason that even our most disaggregated data falls short is that often people reporting two or more races are lumped into various categories depending on who is publishing the data. In 2011, the latest year for which we have this data, the single race American Indian Alaska Native jail population was 12,100 while the total number of people who included a Native identity was over 70,000. And this reporting makes it clear that Native people are overrepresented among the incarcerated populations, but we don't always see the data presented in a way that highlights this disparity, end quote. So this Indigenous People's Day, it's clear as day that the struggle for Native sovereignty, self-determination, and respect continues. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 